0: This is Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of uh, Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Fred Amant, who is the head of Gynecologic Oncology in Amsterdam, and he's also the head of the International Network of Cancer and Infertility and Pregnancy. Fred, it's a great opportunity to speak with you, and I thank you for your time. Um, you. Uh, you just gave a, an outstanding lecture on cancer in uh, in pregnancy. And um, I think that this is obviously a very important topic to follow up with our readership in the International Journal. Can you just give us some basic um, um, understanding of which are the types of cancers that are generally most frequent in uh, in pregnancy, perhaps the, the top three or so that you see more frequently?
1: Thank you, Pedro, for uh, allowing me to, to chat with you on this Um Based on the uh, registry on cancer in pregnancy um, in more than 2,000 uh, women, we basically see that um, breast cancer, uh, cervical cancer, and um, hematologic cancers are the most common cancers. These cancers are, in fact, the cancers we face with uh, women of reproductive age. Um, and we can conclude, basically, that um, pregnancy per se does not predispose to any other particular type of cancer. The cancers we face are the cancer
0: in women of reproductive uh, age. So one of the things you talked about is the importance of obviously the initial evaluation of, uh, of patients diagnosed with a malignancy in pregnancy um, and often that's often a topic of, of discussion as to what's the best imaging study for a patient in order to assess the extent of disease or evidence of metastatic disease. Um, First of all, we do believe that we need to stage our
1: pregnant patients as non-pregnant patients, um, first of all. Secondly, we try to minimize actually the radiation exposure because we know that any radiation exposure may have uh, an effect on the developing uh, fetus. Um, That's why we try to focus on non-ionizing staging procedures like sonography and like MRI. Um, sometimes you can it can be needed if for example if you don't have the mri you can still decide to do like a ct scan then you can try to minimize the, the ionization of the ct Then that's something you have to discuss with the technician with the, with the radiologist but overall try non-ionizing uh, procedures ex- uh, um, imaging procedures um, one important quite new finding is that um, regarding the use of gadolinium that we, there's now good evidence that we should not use this during pregnancy. There has been a long um, hesitation and actually we had not good data on, on what to predict, what to um, how to use the available data, but now you've data in more than 1.4 million pregnancies and it has shown that in fact the use of gadolinium was, was associated with minor but also very major, including fetal death um, uh, consequences. So from this study um, on we say please do not use gadolinium unless it is really uh, f- it is a really clinical um, impact, and it will change your clinical management. But in many cases, this is not the case, and we would not recommend it. In our setting, we use um, also whole-body MRI, um, which allows you actually with one examination to have a view on uh, all uh, well on all body parts, um, and that appears to be functioning very very well too.
0: Great, and you mentioned something really interesting, and I, I wasn't really aware of this, and I was wondering if you can expand on it. Um, non-invasive prenatal testing and incidental uh, maternal cancer diagnosis. Can you tell us a, a little bit about that and how you're using that in your practice?
1: That was indeed very interesting. We had the luck that we were linked in our hospital with the one of the three uh, larger labs in our country where they do the NIPT. So the non-invasive prenatal testing, the, this test is um, designed to identified trisomy 13 18 and 21 to see whether the fetus is um, as a normal chromosomal constitution um, but basically um, so that that means that from the blood cell free DNA uh, from the fetus is identified and examined but in fact also this serum also contains uh, cancer uh, DNA um, maternal DNA and in fact this is uh, I, Undergoes the same procedure as this fetal DNA, and what we, or what our geneticist uh, uh, came one day to us, they say, listen, this is we have here really like a, a normal fetus, but this uh, genetic signature is actually a cancer signature, and we then uh, decided to to do a whole body uh, MRI. And in fact, indeed, we uh, diagnosed the lymphoma and subsequently, in fact, in our hands, but now more and more in clinical practice, we see more and more like cancer during pregnancy in asymptomatic women, but identified during, uh, by this NIPT. So I think it shows that the, the cancer in, in pregnancy diagnosis will be more common just because of this new uh, evolution um, in the prenatal diagnosis. Um, also, this has a consequence for obstetricians. Because they also have to inform the patients more on what could be the result of NIPT. Initially, um, the obstetricians would say, okay, we, we do the test to examine your fetus. But now they have to say, but we, we will also find maternal disease, cancer or not cancer. So this makes the informed consent for NIPT, in fact,
0: more extended. So one of the uh, points that obviously we all need to address is how to manage these patients and what's the best strategy in managing these patients. We go from the discussion about surgery, potentially radiation, and potentially uh, chemotherapy. So beginning with uh, surgery, uh, what are your recommendations uh, for a patient and for the team caring for the patient going to surgery as it pertains to first fetal monitoring? And another point of uh, discussion that often comes up is the use of tocolytics. Um, that's an excellent
1: question also from a practical point of view, very important. Um, we, in fact, we have a lot of experience with operating on pregnant women um, since four years' um, uh, ages. Uh, pregnant women are operated in most cases for non-malignant disease, I, for example, an ap- appendicitis or an ovarian sister torsion. Um, so the, basic, uh, the baseline there is take care for the mother. If you take care for the mother, you automatically will take care um, on, on the baby. Um, regarding the tocolytics, we would only give a tocolytics when um, the uh, when there's a manipulation of the uterus. So in many cases, this is it's not really it's beyond the, the pelvis, and in that case, we would not give a tocolytics. Um, but when it's an abdominal or pelvic operation, we would consider to give um, the tocolytics. Although it's not really well proven, but this
0: is in fact what the what we would suggest. And is there a specific gestational age? beyond which you actually do monitor and and, and actually beyond which you mm-hmm. actually also yeah. give tocolytics.
1: yes um well the the monitor the the monitoring of the baby that depends on the, the gestational age whether the baby is viable or not and depends also on your local protocol if you're according to your local protocol you would do an emergency season section and you have the facility to um, um to accept or a neonatal facility to uh, take care of a very preterm baby, where well, from that is actually the cutoff from which way we would do a monitoring. Before that, if a perinatologist would not do um, um, resuscitation of the neonate, but well, then the monitoring also has no place, but after that, um, and in discussion with the parents, um, we do it and in our hands, uh, fortunately, we never had to do an emergency cesarean section. so I think when we take care of the mother and we, we put in a, in after twenty weeks the mother in the left lateral uh, tilt position, in fact, we never had to do a cesarean an urgent emergency cesarean section. and from our well, uh, network, um, I'm not informed about that. So maybe it exists, but it, I think it still will be very
0: uncommon. So overall, we feel quite comfortable in operating these patients. I was uh, curious about your uh, particular practice as it pertains to laparoscopy and the ideal entry point. I know that obviously there's been discussions as to whether leftover quadrant versus midline. Uh, what, what are your suggestions for those that need to do laparoscopy in a pregnant patient? Um, I think the best recommendation, well, the
1: first thing is we would only do this kind of surgery in experienced hands. So I think it should be the experienced uh, surgeon of the the team that needs to do this uh, or supervise this, uh, this surgery. Apart from that, I think it also depends on your own preference, um, because they are not really comparable studies. So, um, as you indicate, we have two options, the left upper uh, quadrant with the varus needle. Um, There, the risk is that you can perforate the stomach, you can perforate the spleen. That's why we suggest to deflate the stomach and to put the needle in a caudal direction in order not to perforate the spleen. Um, if you take a midline incision, then um, it is recommended to do it a few centimeters above the fundal area of uh, the uterus. Um, some people use the varus needle. I personally prefer the open uh, introduction with opening of the peritoneum, peritoneum on the direct side in order not to uh, perforate the, the uterus, which has been reported. Mm-hmm. So um, in my hands, I prefer the midline incision a bit above the fundus and an open uh, introduction.
0: Okay. Now, changing gears a little bit, um, radiotherapy. Uh, We are often taught, well, radiotherapy is never allowed Mm. in the setting of pregnancy. Is there any one particular uh, patient that will be an ideal candidate for radiotherapy or where radiotherapy can be used? Uh, Tell us a little bit about that. Um,
1: We do believe that radiotherapy is possible. Although we have to say that um, in pregnant women, there are not so many uh, safety data. The data are derived from the atomic bomb survivors, uh, Chernobyl uh, nuclear plant disasters. And if you take then the calculations, Based on these calculations, they, they make a threshold dose. And then we see that um, if we, if we um, irradiate organs during the first or the second trimester of the upper parts of the, uh, the thorax or the head, that we stay well below this threshold dose. We do recommend to, um, uh, to make a calculation using a phantom uh, together with a physicist, um, discuss them with the patient, and then uh, consider the radiation during this radiation, there is a lead screen of, of above the the, uh, the pregnant uh, uterus, um, so that means that there is no direct uh, fetal exposure. But we have to make we have to realize that there will be always some internal scatter, and there, so that there will always be some. Um, fetal exposure that is um, not, cannot be avoided. So cancers we irradiated were brain tumors, uh, thyroid cancer, or lymphoma. I had a patient with a lymphoma of the eye. Um, in rare cases, also the breast can be irradiated. Um, in breast cancer, most of the time, patients need their chemotherapy, so there the radiotherapy can be postponed until after the delivery. But in other cancers, we um, during the first of the second trimester, we can uh, we can do
0: it. Yeah. So then you mentioned chemotherapy. Jumping onto the subject of chemotherapy, uh, do we need to change dose intensity? And tell us a little bit about dose calculation. Is it based on their actual body weight, or do we need to make any changes about that? Um, also here, um, and in general, um, we
1: do believe that patients have the best chances if we stick as much as possible to standard protocols. Um, not only surgery, radiotherapy, but also the chemotherapy. So most drugs um, we use in non-pregnant women, uh, we use also in pregnant women. Um, and that's important because they are standard treatment because they have the best give the best option for the, for the, for the mother. Uh, to be. So we try to give the same drugs. Um, it's a good point you make about the weight because in clinical practice uh, the weight is um, it's taken once and that is used for weeks and months. But um, if you do that in a pregnant population then you will have like um, an under dosing because the weight always increases. So you have to uh, to act according to the actual weight of the patient. So every time she gets a chemo you have to make, to, to calculate based on that, uh, on that weight. Um, and we can use also the most of the uh, supportive drugs we can use uh, during pregnancy. um with one exception is that the uh, Britnyzoona actually, um, crosses the, the placenta, and we know that repetitive expo- exposure will lead to um, attention deficit disorder. So that's why we recommend methylprednisolone, which is metabolized with a methyl group. It, it is larger, it stays in the placenta. It does not cross to the fetus. So that's one, actually, um, exception. But apart from that, most supported drugs we can use, if needed, because we have, like, an, um, a feeling... Uh, which is documented by several specialists that um, pregnant women receiving chemotherapy have less side effects so probably this kind of a chemo dilution which we ob- objectivated and probably that also results in less side effects so that's at least something also
0: good to realize one of the concerns that sometimes is um, um, highlighted is the risk of secondary malignancies in children mm-hmm. of mothers who have chemotherapy can you expand on that and uh, whether that should be a legitimate concern
1: um, it's that's a, a, pof, a focus of interest of our research group until now. In our uh, population, we did not um, discover this, and, but we have to to confess that our patient population is um, it's, a, it's sufficiently old to document this. Um, but at least in our population till now it's reassuring. From the literature we know um, of a few cases, um, actually uh, two cases and one of them for example was like, a child with a thyroid cancer but this uh, child was part of a twin and the uh, fraternal twin was in fact uh, had no cancer. So um, based on that and in the absence of all other data, or um, we, we do believe that actually it is a point, it's not really an, an issue that needs to be discussed with uh, the patient. It's important for us to follow this up, but there is insufficient evidence to, to really um, to be worried about this. We also have to say that, for example, um, there can be secondary cancers in, in adults uh, due to chemotherapy, for example, but the dosages that, um, that our the fetus gets are, in fact, much lower than, um, than the adults. So if there is any drug with the potential of secondary malignancy, uh, we have to realize that, in fact, in the fetus, the dosages are much lower, so also decreasing, in fact, the, low, the, the risk of uh, secondary
0: malignancy. You published a really important paper in the New England Journal of Medicine looking at general health and cognitive outcomes. Can you uh, summarize that for us?
1: Um, we had 129 children born from mothers with uh, cancer during pregnancy. Um, the strength of the study that we, is that we could compare this to a control group. Um, we, uh, we looked into health questionnaires, a cognitive outcome and a cardiac outcome. Um, Children were 18 or 36 months of age, so quite young, but still um, important to look to their development uh, evolution. Um, Also, it was not only chemotherapy, but of course also the the stress imaging procedures, all the supportive drugs that uh, these children were exposed to. And in fact, uh, regarding the cognitive outcome, we could not see any difference between the children. Um, general health uh, was also comparable. The growth, the head circumference, um, the weight, the body height was in fact uh, the same between controls and study groups. In also important, uh, children whose mother was exposed to anthracyclines, which is notorious for their cardiotoxic effects. In fact, when we looked into detail uh, into the um, uh, the heart of the children, in fact, there were no clinical uh, differences. So I think that imp- study was important because it showed that we should not be so scared. I, we totally agree that 36 months is still young. But if you talk to, to pediatricians, they will tell you that if a child is normal at 36 months, it has a strong predictive factor to, be, to have a normal development later on. But, uh, of course, this is what we want to further um, investigate. We continue to follow up this group. Um, We are now ready this month. We will send uh, out the update of the study of the six-year-old children. And this we will continue to do until their age of uh, 18 years old. That is the plan. So the main message is that the results are better than many of us would have anticipated. Um, So that's reassuring. But we still need to follow up this cohort of children
0: and expand the cohort of children. And for now, before closing, uh, you lead an incredibly important registry. Can you just tell our readers a little bit about the registry and uh, what are future plans uh, moving forward?
1: The registry is, um, in fact, functioning well. We have more than 2,000 cases of cancer in pregnancy. The registry also focuses on fertility preservation. It is our aim to, so we are still looking for new centers, so uh, readers are more than welcome to contact me. Um, we prefer to have one representative per center to make the communication um, uh, good and easy. We suggest actually the most central person, and the central person in this whole complex um, situation is in fact obstetrician, because all cancer cases come to uh, obstetrician. so we would recommend that every center would have one specialized, experienced, interested person in this topic, um, and that will cover then um, all the cancer types. Um, How it is organized is that these persons, they uh, get a login of their own center, and then they can uh, uh, register cases online. Um, Centrally, we see all the cases. But every participant has, uh, can keep track of their own cases, so they can use the user registry as an own um, small uh, registry. Um, so that is the, the registry. And we still need um, more uh, cases. Um, for example, what is important is the prognosis. I, I talked about the chemo dilution. Well, we need much more than 2,000 cases to, to make an, um, an assessment on um, pregnant women that received chemotherapy during pregnancy. Uh, whether this chemotherapy is as effective as in non-pregnant patients. Well, to to make any conclusion there, you need quite large groups. And um, that's why we need to further expand the the registry to have sufficient data numbers to make any uh, conclusion on that. One of the future projects um, we want to do is to have like an international tumor board. Um, We have in Belgium and the Netherlands, we have like a a national tumor board. Um, That means that um, a physician somewhere in the country has a case. He presents the case, and uh, within one week, within the tumor board, we make an, uh, an, an advice. Um, and I get on a on a weekly basis. I get cases from all over the world with 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 a question, and that's something that I want to. Um, um, well, to, to make this tumor board to, to elaborate this more on a, on a world level. And that's something we want to elaborate now. That means that a patient a doctor from Uruguay can ask us, us uh, our opinion and within one week we can give him or her like our advice. So this is one of the concrete projects that is um, nearly
0: ready to start um, and which is important for our uh, readers. Well, thank you so much. I want to thank you for your time. And I want to thank you for the contribution you make to the field of gynecologic oncology. It's been absolutely a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Thank you.